most of us don't just want to read our Bible. We want to enjoy it. We want to understand it. This is the Bible Field Guide podcast. We make the Bible make sense. On today's episode, I want to pull back the camera to explore the overarching theme of the Torah, God's presence. The five books of the Torah are an exploration of God's mission to dwell on earth as in heaven. And it's also the story of how human sins and societal corruption jeopardize that mission and purpose. Most stories have a theme. Breaking Bad, for example, is the story of how one bad choice can snowball into a bad life. Stranger Things, one of my newer favorite TV shows, is the story of how friendship can overcome evil. So what's the theme of the Torah? Well, there's actually probably multiple themes, but one theme I think sits at the heart of the Torah, and it's God's desire to dwell, to live with humanity. It's God's plan to unite heaven, which is his place, and earth, the place that he's entrusted to humanity as his vice regents. The theme of the Torah is God's presence, God's mission to dwell on earth. So here's what I want to do. Let's go ahead and and take about 10 minutes to see from 60,000 feet how that theme develops in the pages of the Torah. So on page one, God creates our world, and he intends to fill it with his presence through creatures, us, who are made in his image. On page two, God takes the additional step of planting a mountain garden. That's important, this idea of a mountain garden, a mountain garden called delight, or in Hebrew, Eden. And he puts humans there to cultivate the mountain garden and to actually spread its boundaries so that it encompasses all of creation. Now, here's what's really cool about Eden. An ancient person would have quickly and easily seen that it was a garden temple, right? That it was a place where God's presence was dwelling on earth because that's what temples were. They were hot spots where where the presence of a God would exist. And just like we know from Greek mythology, God's dwelled up on mountains. This was a similar view from the ancient Hebrews. And so it's no surprise that later on the tabernacle and the temple, they are decorated to look something like Eden, because Eden is a place where heaven and earth overlap, where God's presence is there. And so we see on that second page that the whole goal of humanity, the whole goal of God partnering with humanity is to expand the boundaries of God's garden temple so that, again, it encompasses the whole earth. Eden is kind of a picture of what life should be. Humans in relationship with God, humans in relationship with each other and all of creation, reflecting God's love, justice, and mercy as they continued his creative project. But on page three, there's a rupture in the relationship. Humanity rebels. And as a result of that rebellion, they are exiled. They're sent out from God's presence. And we see humanity after that descend into this awful, terrible darkness. They fill the world with corruption and sin instead of filling it up with God's presence. And so God ends up calling a new Adam, a guy named Noah, to begin a new creation. But before this new creation can begin, God wipes the old one clean. 
If you think about it, the ark is kind of a floating Eden. It's a new launching pad for God's mission to dwell on earth. But the minute Noah gets off the boat, we realize that he is infected with the exact same sickness as every other human. His children end up building a counter Eden, which is called Babel or Babylon. And God, when he sees this counter Eden, this world uh, set in rebellion to him, he, he again does an act of exile. He scatters humanity. And so by the end of all these stories, we're left to wonder, is this it? Can God ever dwell on earth with humans corrupt and full of sin as they are? The story continues because God refuses to give up. He decides to continue his mission, same old mission, I want to dwell on earth as in heaven, but he decides to do it through Abraham and his children. This is why Abraham and his children, they all build altars, because altars are places where heaven and earth overlap. They're hot spots, if you will, of God's presence on earth as in heaven. The most famous altar that Abraham builds is the one on Mount Moriah. It's the place where God calls him to sacrifice Isaac. And of course, the story goes on. God stops him and he gives Abraham a ram in the place of his son. Uh, But here's again what matters. That spot where Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac, it becomes the spot of the temple later on, the ultimate hot spot of God's presence in the Old Testament. Fast forward the story and Abraham's descendants are living in Egypt. And there's a Pharaoh there who ends up conscripting all of Abraham's children, all of his descendants into slavery. And we realize that this Pharaoh, he is continuing the project of Babylon. He's building a new counter Eden that is trying to map God's presence out of reality. In the first half of Exodus, God rescues his people. He makes himself known. You can't map me out of reality. But in Exodus 4, 6, and 15, he he makes a different purpose clear as well. God is rescuing his people. He's rescuing his children so that he can bring them to dwell with him at a new mountain garden. In Exodus 19, that's exactly what God does. God brings his people to a new mountain of his presence called Sinai. And at Sinai, he makes a covenant with Israel. He turns them into a nation and he agrees to work with them to establish heaven on earth. In other words, they're going to be priests living in a new Eden, a new place where God is dwelling amongst humans. And so it's no surprise that in the following chapters, God gives them instructions for building a movable mountain garden, a movable Eden, a movable Moriah, a movable Sinai. It's called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the place where God's presence is on earth. Uh, Yet again, though, (laughs) you start seeing the cycle. Uh, It becomes clear that the problem of Israel's sin, because Israel's infected with it too, it could jeopardize God's mission. So the book of Leviticus, which can be a challenging book that makes many of people who say, I'm going to read the whole Bible stop altogether. In Leviticus, we read this elaborate system of sacrifices and rituals. And these sacrifices and rituals, they are designed to restore people's relationships with God, uh, to cleanse people of sin. But that's not all. Uh, Something that people often don't realize is that the rituals and sacrifices actually cleanse the tabernacle itself. It makes the tabernacle uh, a place where God can dwell. Uh, the, The rituals, the sacrifices, they, in a sense, recreate the tabernacle over and over again into a new Eden where God's presence can once again dwell on earth as in heaven. The sacrifices described in Leviticus, they're integral to God's mission to transform the earth into a place for his presence. 
God continues, and he gives his people laws, and he gives them festivals. And these things, again, they're designed to shape people's hearts and habits so that they can identify justice and live just lives, so that they can be God's image bearers, reflecting him into the world. The law is actually a tremendous gift that God gives to his people so that they can pursue their calling to make their community into a new Eden. But then we get to the book of Numbers, and just before Israel's about to enter into the promised land, we're almost there. Well, guess what happens? The problem of sin. The people refuse, they rebel. And it's as if page three of the Bible is happening all over again. Humanity is rebelling. And because the people say to God, we don't want to go into the land, we don't trust you, you can't take the land for us, that whole generation ends up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years until all of them die. And that wandering is a picture of life apart from the presence of God. That wilderness is a picture of life apart from the presence of God. At the end of the Torah and the book of Deuteronomy, a new generation of Israel is finally poised to enter into the promised land. And right as they're getting ready to go, they're standing on the borderlands thinking maybe we'll be the ones. We're going to be the ones who reboot Eden, who bring God's dwelling on earth right before they're about to go over. Moses actually renews a covenant with God's people. And this covenant renewal, it's it's a sermon, and that's actually what the whole book of Deuteronomy is. It's a book uh, that's a sermon, which is reminding them of their calling to love God and to obey God from the heart. Moses is preparing them for God's mission. Through them, he's going to reestablish his presence on earth. Sadly, though, Moses maybe somewhat ironically warns them that ultimately they will fall short. And so the good news is that one day God will send a prophet like Moses, and through that prophet's work, their hearts, Israel's hearts, will be transformed so that they can finally obey God from the heart. And that's where the story ends. Moses dies, and the Torah, which began with promises about entering into a land that God would give his people, well, it ends before that's ever fulfilled. The story ends with people living on the borderlands of God's promises. And it's kind of a strange way to end a story, isn't it? But I think that's part of the theme itself. God wants to dwell on earth as in heaven, and he wants to do it through the agency of his human creatures. But again and again, us, his human creatures, we continually obstruct and jeopardize his mission. Just like the Israelites, we often find ourselves living on the borderlands between the ultimate hope God has set before us, a new creation filled with his presence. We sit on the borderlands of that hope, new creation, and our actual reality, which is a decaying creation corrupted by sin. I think that we are all being invited to enter into the theme of the Torah, this idea that God wants to dwell with us, and yet there's a tension because we are all sinful, corrupted people. And so to enter into the theme means entering into the tension and exploring all the different ways that God could act to restore us and to heal us, how God can pursue his mission of dwelling among us through these tremendous acts of calling, and redemption, of judgment, of salvation, of covenant, kingship, discipline, sacrifice, and law. I'm excited to explore that theme together over the coming months. Thanks for listening to Bible Field Guide. Please subscribe and give us a rating if you like this content. It helps other people find our podcast. If you don't already follow us on Instagram, just search for Bible Field Guide or click the link in the show notes. 
or you can go to our website, biblefieldguides.com, to browse what we've created so far. We're still in the very early stages of the project. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, this is kind of our, our first real jaunt into the Bible. So there's not a lot out there yet, but we've got a lot, lot, lot more planned. So if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas, or musings, you can go onto our website, email us there. Please reach out. We'd love to hear from you.